Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. What I thought I'd like to talk about when Morris wrote to me and asked me if I'd like to do this um, was talk about um, the doctor-patient relationship in art. And um, the doctor-patient relationship has changed a great deal over the centuries. Um, But why in art? Well, there's a quotation I think you have in your little handouts because I saw it this morning. And I must also at this point uh, thank Ian Milne for his support in doing all this. He's been a really stalwart with me over the... Oh, he's coming, I won't go on. Uh, (laughs) A stalwart with me over the years. And I think you've got nearly all my books, which is rather nice. But why art? Well, John Berger said, no other kind of relic or text from the past can offer such a direct testimony about the world which surrounded other people at other times. If you think about it, you can describe, say, an amputation, but to see a a realistic painting done at the time, before anaesthetics, boy, it looks totally different. That really does get to you. So I've chosen works of art to try and illustrate these cyclical changes in the doctor-patient relationship. It has been cyclical, and it's still going on. Let me explain. First of all, you have diagnostic improvements. So this leads to a lot of respect for the physicians and surgeons. But then this leads to disillusionment when you have no effective treatment. But then we get therapeutic improvement, so then we get more increased respect again, but then disillusionment when you find it's only limited treatment. And we've gone in these cycles like this over the last 2,000 years, a little bit more. And I thought I'd start with the ancient Greeks. This is a hobby of mine, by the way, ancient Greeks, and it's a funny hobby to have, but I quite enjoy it. Every year we go to ancient Greece, uh, to the old parts of Greece to look at statues and things like that, which is the sort of thing that amuses you when you're coming towards the end. And um, <laughs> this is Asclepius, uh, and he was the great uh, god of uh, treatment and so on in ancient Greece. Uh, there was probably nobody called Asclepius. Um, The myth is that he was the son of Apollo by this beautiful lady Coronis. But uh, the problem was that he found out she'd been unfaithful. So he got very angry and he gave the baby to Chiron, who therefore taught him medicine and brought him up. And Chiron is actually the uh, emblem of the College of Physicians in Edinburgh. And also you'll notice here this Caduceus, or whatever they want to call it, And that, of course, has stayed with us ever since for all aspects of medicine. Oh, there's a lot been written on this. Why a snake? Well, I think the easiest way of looking at this is that snake sheds its skin, so it goes on living forever. That's what they thought. Maybe that was why. We don't know. Anyway, this was Asclepius. And as I say, every year we go to this part of ancient Greece. This is a group of us. We go with a a theologian from Edinburgh, a professor of archaeology, there's only about 12 of us, and we go and look at these sites. And uh, this is the Temple of Asclepius at Epidaurus. And the thing was that you went into the temple, you told the... You, you'll see this parallels with modern medicine. You, t- they, you speak to the priest, and the priest would say, oh, yes, gosh, that's terrible, or whatever, sympathetic. Then you'd sleep in there, and the following day you're supposed to be cured, and then you thank the gods by 
leaving something there, a bit like alternative medicine nowadays, I think. Anyway, whatever. Um, this is uh, the temples, which you still find all over the place uh, in ancient Greece. And this is, was all going to be replaced dramatically, 500 BC, 400 BC, by Hippocrates. With such a famous man, you'd think we know a lot about him. Well, we don't. Um, he wrote some 70 works, but nobody is quite certain which ones he actually wrote. And uh, <clears throat> he came from Kars, the island in the Aegean. Uh, but really, we don't really know an awful lot about him. But gosh, he's influenced our medicine ever since. Um, there was a time when we all took the Hippocratic Oath. Did any of you here do it? When you graduated? Yes. Um, and if you remember it, I've got it down here from one of my students who was in Edinburgh. Uh, he's a Greek student. He's now a professor of medicine in Athens. And uh, he's done a book about it. And this is a translation. I'm not going to go through it all. This is what Hippocrates said um, about 400 BC. I swear by Apollo that a tr treatment will be according to my ability. Oh, there, don't go past what you can't do. Uh, no lethal drugs, no abortions. I will always have a life in purity and holiness. I will abstain from any intentional injustice or harm to my patients. And they also meant the slaves as well. And whatever I see in the course of treatment, I will tr st be strictly confidential. So these are things we've kept with ever since. And so I suppose you could say he made a great transition from uh, just folklore to now he begins to look for causes. Mm -hmm. They weren't very clever. It was all to do with changes in what they call the humours, uh, yellow bile, black bile, blood, and all phlegm, that sort of thing. And how is it affected by diet and weather? And what could they do? They could use herbs or they could use purgation or um, bleeding and so on. But at least they were making an attempt to try and find the causes of diseases before they went on to treatment. And this is from the second century BC. Uh, it's a, it's um, a physician called Jason. And here he is examining a boy. You see that in Asclepius, they didn't examine the patients at all because they wouldn't know what they were looking for. And here he's checking this lead out for something or other. So it really did uh, change the way people approach medicine. And this is actually um, Hippocrates here. Um, treated, it's from uh, the Louvre in France, in Paris, uh, a jar taken at the time when he was like, he's bleeding a patient. And recently we had an international meeting in Naples. And um, I took some time off, like one does at meetings, and went to the big uh, museum there in Naples. And, of course, it's all the museum is almost all um, about the ruins of Pompeii uh, when Vesuvius blew up and destroyed the whole place. And that was AD 79. And this was in the rubbish that they found. So people, though they were practicing Hippocratic medicine, were still relying on Asclepius if everything else failed. We still do that, don't we? We still pray if you go through a difficult period in your life you still pray. Well, that's Hippocratic medicine. And it went on and it got changed and so on. And this is from a, a, 14th, a 12th century document in the British Museum. And this is a Hippocratic doctor here. See, he's got his university gown on. This is his assistant. Here's the patient. Nobody looks very happy, do they? But um, it, it just shows you it was going on then. This is the 12th century. And in the 12th century, Various medical schools were founded, not universities, medical schools. Salerno was the first one, 
then Paris, Bologna, and Oxford in 1167. These were the fa- but they weren't universities. They were training in Hippocratic medicine, so that he could call himself a doctor and wear the doctor's regalia. Now this is another. This is a little bit later. It's a 14th century manuscript. There's 48 of these pictures. I just chose four. Uh, showing the doctor treating patients because it's supposed to tell you how to treat patients with various diseases. This one's clearly vomiting. This one's perhaps got epilepsy or something. Uh, I don't know what this one. Oh, headaches. And this one, I don't. Not quite certain. But look, these chaps have all got university gowns on, but he hasn't. He's a surgeon, and we still call surgeons in Britain Mister, don't we? I have a neighbour where I live in South Devon, and he hates being called Mister. He wants to be called Doctor now. And dentists are called doctor now, so it's changed. But for a long time, that was how it was, that uh, doctors were trained, surgeons were just, well, I don't know what surgeons did then. But anyway. And this is a little bit late. This is 15th century now, uh, by the Master of Altmar, Flemish artist. And it shows you how much the, the part that the church paid played in treating its uh, patients. It's called um, the Seven Acts of Charity. And these included caring for the sick, visiting the sick, feeding the sick, clothing, and so on and so forth. And when I was a medical student, as you heard from Morris, I went to medical school rather late in life after military service. So when I qualified, I was a little 10 years or 11 years older than my student friends. And when we decided you have a, a sabbatical year or six months, many of them as students went off to pleasant places like America you see and places like that or they'd look for somewhere in the Caribbean I suppose uh, but um, I decided to go to <coughs> Germany and <coughs> the hospital where I, I didn't speak German so it's quite difficult and the hospital where I worked um, I was told to put up a drip on a patient so I did and I said to the nun because the hospital was run by nurses who were all nuns um, is it, it, would you make certain it doesn't stop and she said yes and then that would be about 7 o'clock in the evening. I came back the following morning, she's still sitting there. Now that dedication has been reflected in the church ever since. I'm not a religious person, so don't misinterpret any of this. Uh, it's not a polemic for, for that sort of thing. But it did have a big effect. There was two reasons. First of all, because of their religion, they could do something like that. Secondly, of course, uh, in the uh, churches that time, they were Catholic, uh, the monks were the only ones who could read and write. So they could transmit this Hippocratic medicine, and so on, in their everyday uh, doctrines. Uh, now, we're getting a little bit puzzled now. People are getting more educated now. And we're now entering the 15th century. Uh, this is a deathbed scene from the hours of Catherine of Cleves. It's from a, uh, a large work in New York Academy of Medicine. I want you to look at it carefully. This guy's dying. Obviously, they've given him the last rites, uh, or this chap is. Perhaps she is too, I don't know. Uh, here's the doctor looking at the urine. Now, you know, you could look at this two ways, couldn't you? I don't know what the artist did who did this, the <coughs> Catherine of Cleves. Is she saying, look at the guy, looking at the urine, and the guy's dead. You want, the people are beginning to question, that's all they could do was look at the urine. I suppose this is the beginning of it, but it's best of all with the Dutch painter Jan Steen. He painted no less than 18 doctor-patient pictures like this, and many of you will have seen them in Amsterdam. <clears throat> this is one of the best ones I like. It was, let me see, when was it painted? 1633. 
Look at it carefully. These Dutch pages are full of uh, little messages. For instance, this is Adonis uh, up here, and this little boy's got a bow and arrow. Thinking along the same lines. Um, this is a bit subtle. If a woman's pregnant, uh, a test for it was to burn straw in a little basket, and she felt nauseated. She was pregnant. Um, is this the husband who's been cuckolded? We don't know. The doctor's well dressed. He's, you can tell him. He's sort of saying, "Oh, I know what this is. You know, I." Um, and he's looked at the urine and he's feeling a pulse. But does he know? Jan Steen was very critical of the medical profession because they couldn't do anything. They looked at the urine, took a pulse, and that was it. And things weren't really improving. And around just a little bit later than this, there was a, a physician here in Edinburgh, and he said at a time, a very famous one, said, this useful and important art, that's medicine, should have improved so little in so many centuries we've discovered few remedies of any value or the cure of any diseases. People, even the profession was now beginning to say, something's wrong, we're doing nothing, we're not getting anywhere. So we're going down into a dip again now, uh, just as I want, but then things started to change. And uh, there were three things all started in the uh, end of the 18th century. There was vaccination, there was uh, venisection stopped, which I'll show you in a minute, and we had improved hygiene. Those three things, now we're going to really change things. And this is a wonderful picture. There are many pictures of uh, Jenna vaccinating like this. You know the story, of course, don't you? That he took uh, material from a girl here who uh, got cowpox. She wouldn't get ill. But if he took that uh, material and injected it into people, then after a little while they became resistant to smallpox. And the first uh, boy he did was James Phipps. And the story is incredible. You'd never get away with this now. He injected him with cowpox, and a few weeks later injected him with smallpox. Didn't go to before an ethical committee or anything. And it worked. But nobody thought at the time it was terribly important in Britain. Um, the church thought it was uh, not a very good idea. Um, the... Um, the army didn't want it. So why have I chosen this particular painting? Because it's by Georges Mélange, who is a French artist at the time. And the French were totally for it. Napoleon was, God bless himself, he gave it to all his soldiers, which was very valuable, and the church wasn't to get it either. So it's quite incredible. Then it took off. It's 200 years ago since this was done, and 30 years ago, as you know, Smallpox has now been totally eradicated from the world. It's in a few test tubes in chemical laboratories for biological warfare, I suppose, but otherwise it's disappeared. And I think this is wonderful. And incidentally, he became a fellow of the Royal Society of London, but not for this. He got it for his work on cuckoos. We live in a funny world, don't we? Eh? Anyway, well, where are we now? And then this is the second thing that happened. This is George Washington. I don't know who painted this or did it. It's a sort of colour wash, I think. It's 1799. George Washington, the first president of the United States. <clears throat> very fit man. Had terrible teeth, but that's a separate problem. Uh, he was a very fit man. He went for a walk, got a bad cold, went onto his chest, and they started to bleed him. <clears throat> he wanted bleeding, and he had so much blood taken out of him. What did he do? He died of loss of blood. 
And the young doctors then began to say, hey, this can't be right. We can't go on doing this. We've got to stop venisection. And so it started to stop then. They still get people do venisection, but now it's extremely rare. No doctors in Britain would do it. And so that was the second thing. And the third <laughs> big thing was with um, Nurse Nightingale uh, at Scutari in 1854. Here she is, this battle, this uh, pointless war, the Crimean War, almost like our Iraq War, totally <laughs> pointless, unjustified. And um, the painter who did this is actually up here. He painted himself in. Painters like doing that. Jerry Barrett, he was a, a great Victorian painter, painted many scenes. Victoria liked him a lot. And of course, this is Nurse Nightingale here. And she clicks uh, the death in the hospitals then, not from wounds, but just from infectious diseases, was almost 50%. And she reduced it by cleaning the wards to 2%. And the same story, if you read War and Peace, which has been one of my Bibles over the years, I've read it many times now, after the Battle of Borodino, you remember, Prince Andre also found the same thing in the hospitals. People were dying of infections. And um, this, of course, uh, changed everything. Interesting, though, Nightingale believed the cause was miasma. She thought it was smells that gave you cholera and dysentery and all those other diseases, um, which is at the very same as this was done. Snow, John Snow, in London, took off the Broad Street pump and stopped an outbreak of cholera because he believed it was infected water. The two of them working at the same time. Of course, we needed both, didn't we? But there we are. That's a, I like this painting very much indeed. And I like this one too, because now things are changed. Science is now entering the field. Have you seen this painting, have you? any of you? Never? Ah, well, if you go to London, I know in, people in Edinburgh don't like going to London, but there's a good national gallery there. <laughs> and uh, this is a big painting in it by Wright of Derby. And it's called Experiments on a Bird in an Air Pump. And it's the end of the 18th century. Now, the thing is, what he's done, you see, he's taken air out of this pump and the little bird has gone unconscious. Because boil had shown you needed air, otherwise you'd die. Later it was shown what it was, it was oxygen. There's a lot in this picture. It's very, very clever indeed. You could, it's a big picture, almost a, perhaps just about that side, actually, in reality. And you could go on for ages with it. Um, here's the boy. It's enlightenment. See the moon? You could interpret that as enlightenment. Uh, here's the speaker. The little girl here. Oh, Daddy, I don't want to see this. But this one's more like my children. Dead keen on seeing what else the bird. And he's explaining it all here, which is rather nice. He's thinking about the future. And then here you see this couple, you know, when you're teaching medical students, there's always couples like, they're more interested, well, where are you going tonight, dear? Well, I don't. <laughs> they're not interested in the science anymore. Anyway, but it's a one, and it is the beginning now, a big change is going to happen now. After all these years of Hippocratic medicine and doing all these crazy things like venisection, looking at your urine, things were going to change. And they did, they changed very, very rapidly. In a, just a 50 years, it must have been a wonderful time to have lived if you were a doctor from about 1820 to the end of the century. Um, why? Well, we had, first of all, this is Lenach, who invented the stethoscope. He was a French doctor, you all know this very well, uh, but he felt embarrassed putting his ear onto a lady's chest, as one would, wouldn't one? Well, you would in those days. People do it all the time now, I suppose. And he found that if he did a roll of piece of paper, 
he could put it against his ear and it works better. That was 1860. That was a stethoscope. So he was the first. This is not by a local, uh, but sorry, not by a contemporary artist. This is by a local artist, uh, Ernest Board. But it still brings out the point. It's still the church, you see, running the place. But here's the doctor. And that was it. That was 1816. Just listen to these dates. You probably know them anyway. Then the ophthalmoscope in 1847. The laryngoscope in 1854. The thermometer in 1870 and x-rays in 1895. What an incredible period to go through. And all these, of course, meant now you could diagnose these diseases. And this was a new way of approaching. Now we could diagnose the damn things. And this is my hero. Um, Maurice failed to mention that my interest in life has been muscular dystrophy. And the disease I did a lot of work on was Duchenne. And I'm still much involved with the charity <coughs> now. Uh, we quite do shun off the Frenchman, Duchenne first described it. No, we did not. He wrote 120 pages describing just what happened to these kids and uh, nothing else. Nothing, the histology was very confusing. This guy was Edward Merrion, uh, who was uh, an English, it was a Huguenot, who came over from France, his family did. He settled in London and he wrote 12 pages. And everything's in that one article in 1851, years before Duchenne. Uh, he showed, for instance, it ran in families, didn't know what that meant, of course, and only affected boys, but could be tra was transmitted through females who were normal. Nobody had thought like that before. Then secondly, um, he showed that uh, a boy died in the markets in London, kicked to death by a horse, so he got the spinal cord and compared with a boy who just died with Duchenne and showed that the spinal cords were normal. So this wasn't a nervous disease, it was a disease of muscle. And thirdly, and most interesting, when he studied the histology of the muscle, he realised the sarcolemma broke down, and that wasn't confirmed until 1987. He was really a very remarkable man. I'll tell you a nice little anecdote, trying to get this damn thing up on the wall where he lived, outside uh, Piccadilly, near Piccadilly in London. And uh, I was taking pictures, because you have to do this, to send it off to the council to get permission to put this thing up. And a guy came up, I think he was a retired colonel or something. What the hell are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm just taking these photographs. Not another bloody poet or politician. I said, no, no, sir, he's a, he's a doctor. A doctor? So it went up straight away. <laughs> and this is Edward Merrion, and uh, a very nice man indeed. A Huguenot been persecuted his family in Europe, just like the Jews were. This was the French persecuting uh, the Protestants. Anyway, you all don't know about that. But that's Edward Merrion. So remember, it's not Duchenne muscular dystrophy, it's Merrion's disease. Anyway, that's my point. All right, let's move on now. So this is all happening in that 19th century. What about the surgeons? Ah, now they had a wonderful time. Because all this happened in 1846. This is by an American painter, not contemporary. It was painted in 1882 by Robert Hinckley who some of you will know because he's done a great many genre paintings in America in Victorian times. But this is of an event that occurred in 1846. And it's this young man here, I can't see very... Oh, yes, here he is, here, giving ether to this patient. And this is a man called Morton. And I'd like to read a little bit from his wife's diary at the time, Morton's diary. Because if you think about it, this was an enormous step forward, that you could lay somebody out and do a terrible operation on them and they wouldn't feel it and they'd come round. Because before that, 
You know, in, uh, in Nelson's Navy and so on, they used the most terrible thing. Got people very drunk, gave them morphia. And it still didn't stop them screaming with pain. This is what his wife said in her diary. The night before the, my op sorry, the night before the operation, my husband worked until one or two o'clock in the morning upon his inhaler. I assisted him nearly beside myself with anxiety, for the strongest influences had been brought to bear upon me to dissuade him from making this attempt. I'd been told one of two things could happen. Either the test would fail and my husband would be ruined for life, or he would be killed, he would kill the patient and be tried for murder. Thus I was drawn in two ways. For while I had unbounded confidence in my husband, don't hear that very often now, do you? It did not seem possible that so young a man could be wiser than these ancient, learned and scientific men before he proposed to do this demonstration. It must have been taken great guts if you think about it. And he did, and this is ether. And within Oh, six months, the message had got over to Britain. And this is Liston, a Scottish surgeon uh, who'd gone down to London, I'm sorry to say, and was a professor of surgery. This painting is unique. My wife and I found this stuck on a board uh, in a hospital in London. And when we turned it over, on the back, it's a black and white photograph, it said the original has been destroyed because we thought it wasn't legitimate. I don't know who did that. And we've never been able to locate it and some of you will know the famous history of medicine, Guthrie's history of medicine, you know? Well, he's got this picture in his book, the black and white, just like that. But he doesn't know where the origin is either. But this is Liston operating, and he said, this is no Yankee Dodge. That was the quotation at the time. Because they gave, this is a student giving ether to the patient. He takes off his leg. Liston was known to be able to do it in a few minutes without anaesthetic, which on one occasion included his assistant's thumb. Uh, he was so quick, I know. Uh, and there's uh, somebody else here. This is Lister. We recognise that's Lister. Now, this would all change. Lister and Liston and all this lot would change. Now we had ether anaesthetics, and later we'd have antiseptics. But, of course, ether causes lots of irritation, and people didn't like it. And then to our hero here that Morris, our chairman, has written about, and if you haven't read the book, I don't get royalties, it's one of the best biographies I've ever read because he makes his famous quotation which is indelibly in my mind now about Simpson. He was liked by his students and liked by his patients but some of his academic colleagues didn't tolerate him very well. And we all know that, don't we? <laughs> well, it's a wonderful biography and you must read it because Morris puts Simpson in the context of the academic politics at the time. And it was very difficult for him to have chloroform accepted. This was one year after ether. But chloroform was much better. And what changed it all was when Queen Victoria was given uh, chloroform for the birth of her son. And she said it was wonderful. That was it. Everybody cottoned on and said, oh, well, if the Queen will have it, we'll have it. But I would recommend this book. It's really <laughs> super, isn't it, Morris? <laughs> <laughs> So, and there's a big picture of him here. This is by an artist, uh, uh, a Scottish artist called Macbeth, and it's actually in the college here. You'll see it's on the right-hand side as you come in. Anyway. Then, something else was happening too. Now we had all this gimmicky stuff, equipment. We could do operations without anaesthetics and so on. Uh, and people were now being taught. They had something to tell them, because up until this point, there was nothing you could tell students. I mean, Hippocratic medicine 
didn't tell you much at all. Now they have lots of things. And this is by Charcot, who himself was an artist. Uh, a doctor recently had a copy of his book of drawings. He used to photograph patients as well, early photography, but he mainly drew them. They're wonderful. He was an exceptional artist. Uh, but this is, um, this is Charcot teaching, uh, very famous. His name's attached to all sorts of things. Hey, uh, uh, muscular, um, multiple sclerosis, the Charcot joint, the Charcot triad, and so on and so forth. And everybody here is identifiable. I, there's only two I know, Babinski here and uh, uh, De La Tourette, of Tourette syndrome. And uh, this girl, of course, has hysteria. Some of the ones he diagnosed were a bit weird. But the point about this painting... Um, which is by a French artist called Brulé, who was very famous in his day as an artist, uh, again a genre painter. Um, you can see that uh, people were now being educated. Things were changing now. And here's an interesting... This is a, an artist that uh, I don't suppose very, people know very much about. He was an American artist called Irving Wiles. Um, this is a, a watercolour drawing not a very good one, but it illustrates something very important. And this is in 1891. And here you see the doctor's... Oh, dear, dear. The doctor's painting... Uh, uh, sorry. The doctor's uh, teaching on a little baby here with a wife. But look in the audience. There are women here now in the audience. Women are now coming into medicine. And here you can all praise Edinburgh because um, Edinburgh became the first... Uh, centre in uh, Britain uh, to admit women officially officially, to medical school and established medical school in 1889 and then London 1918 but there's still a lot to be learned so some of you who keep up with the literature will know that um, uh, women are still finding it difficult to get certain jobs uh, in medicine and surgery still but still they are admitted now and uh, this made, so these things were all happening quite quickly. And this is by an artist who you've probably never heard of. He was a great Victorian artist, Tuesday, uh, June Frederick 16th, Daniel Hardy. He went to the Royal Academy of Music Cleases, uh, to take up music, and all his friends said he was a better painter. We used to play doctors. I mean... Yeah, you don't do it now, do you? Um, but you see, you can see here's Grandma and Mum saying, oh, look at the little darlings. And here he's taking a pulse and, and they're making up medicines here and so on. Of course, kids don't play doctors now, do they? Well, not the children I know anyway. Um, uh, but you see, because there was respect now for doctors and surgeons, it was drifting right through society. But now let's come down to reality again. See, we're going in these cycles now. And this is another very <coughs> favourite painting of mine, The Doctor by Sir Luke Fildes. Or Luke Fildes, he hadn't been knighted then. He went down to Devon um, to a fisherman's cottage uh, and got material from there and did lots of sketches, then back, back to his studio in London and painted this. And I think it's very good. Some people have criticised, say it's sentimental. I don't think so. Because you, if you're a doctor, you, you know many times you've seen children and other, you want to treat them. And he's saying to himself, what the heck do I do now? Is she going to get better? She's had the medicine, she's had everything. It's been a long night, the mum's gone to sleep here, the fisherman's, and here's the, the uh, day breaking, here's the father here. 
Somebody wrote an article about this recently, I think it was in the British Medical Journal, saying this was, oh, just um, um, hypocrisy and so on. I don't think so. I'll tell you why. First of all, he was brought up with, by his grandmother, and um, his grandmother was at Peterloo in 1819, and that was in Manchester, where they had the riots against the Corn Laws, and many people were killed by the soldiers and those with uh, the cavaliers, whatever you call them, cavalry officers and so on. He must have got that story. He must have been very sensitive about the poor strata of society. In fact, he, he painted another painting, which some of you will have seen, called Applications for a Casual Ward, which emphasises that again, the poverty in society. And we don't have treatments. What are we going to do about it? But this artist, maybe you'll know, he's called Kayleigh Robinson. He was Professor of Art at Glasgow for several years, and he painted people at the First World War. And they're in blues. Blues, why? Well, because if you were wounded in the First World War, you were given blue uniforms. They were all exactly the same size, so you had to roll up the bottoms here, you see. And they had no pockets because you weren't allowed any money. And um, by the sort of colours of things you could put on your sleeves, they could tell how seriously ill you were. Uh, this is perhaps Kayleigh Robinson, I don't know, or perhaps this is. These are normal people, and he's looking at these poor chaps who've been invalided out. At that stage, and it's, um, oh, I better tell you about Kelly Robinson. Um, his paintings largely escaped. They were in, buried at Westminster Hospital, apparently, and when they pulled the place down, oh, no, Middlesex, sorry, and when they pulled it down, um, they welcome in London, acquired them, and there's been a big exhibition of them, and if you do go to London, and I hope you will, um, you can see this now in the National Gallery, very, various ones of his paintings, they're all that. It's make you think quite seriously about what he sees he's trying to say. He's a clever artist. It's not just a painting, it's a clever, he's telling you something. And I think what he's telling me is, these chaps have been deserted. My dad in the First World War was gassed. And my wife, who's interested in looking these things up, found his, his um, certificate of, um, what do you call it, demobilisation, or whatever they call it in those days. It doesn't mention any of the fact that he was gassed. All it says is he's now fit for service. They don't want to pay pensions, I suppose. Well, we live in a weird world, don't we? Anyway, right, let's move. It's getting a bit depressing now, isn't it? Yes. Well, it, it starts to get up now. This, is, this could be where I lived. Um, in the back streets of Manchester. I could have been... This was 1935 by Lowry. And uh, I would have been eight years old, so this could be now we, me with my Auntie Clara looking at... Um, this is the fever van. I remember those as a kid. The fever van would come down the street, be deathly silence, and a little child would be taken out of the house, put in the fever van, taken off to the hospital, rarely came back again, because he usually had a whooping cough, very severely, or diphtheria, <clears throat> and um, or everything in the house would be burnt and destroyed, the child's mm -hmm. things. It was really terrible. I must tell you a nice little anecdote about Lowry. When I was a resident in Manchester, I painted all my life, not, not very good, but I used to go to classes and there was a group of us, about six, all different sorts of people, plumbers and housewives and myself and so on, maybe 12. And every year, uh, the teacher used to have a famous artist come and look at our paintings, done anonymously. So you'd put one on the chair, you see, and, and then he'd come in and look at it and say, oh, I think this is wonderful. So he always knew it was because he'd smile. Or he'd say, well, this is rubbish. And so he'd burst into tears. Well, on one occasion, we had Lowry, and everybody went because it was snowing. And uh, he and I were left on our own. And I said, can I give you a lift home, Mr. Lowry? 
And he said, oh, no, it's, it's too far for you. I said, no, I don't. I said, where do you live? He said, Mottram, which is on the moors. And so I said, oh, I'll, I'll take you home. So we took him home. Oh, it was a Victorian house. It was freezing. His mother had died. He was living on his own. He's a very nice man, Lowry. Extremely nice. No sight to him at all. And he left me in the living. He said, would you like a cup of tea before you go home? And I said, all right. So making me a cup of tea. Now look at his paintings. This would be about 1955 or 6. I'm looking at his paintings. And he comes back and he says, do you like those? I said, I do. Oh, why don't you take a few? <laughs> <laughs> My God, if I had, I don't think I'd be here now. <laughs> well, no, perhaps I would, perhaps I would. But do you know what I mean? And, but this epitomises something that changed then. Just around this time, we started children's vaccination. The whooping cough and diphtheria. And we all got that. I've had it, you must have had it. And now, of course, there are many other diseases we can vaccinate for. So this was the beginning of it. And here I'm cheating a little bit, a bit ironic this is, because of course our society changed in 1948 with the introduction of the um, National Health Service. I still think it's the best thing we ever did, but actually this is a doctrine he studied by Norman Rockwell, painted in 1948, and he's an American, and they don't like our socialised medicine. Well, but the point about this picture is really Here's the doctor. This could be any GP in Britain. <clears throat> he's still a countryman with his dog and his gun and so on, but now he's got lots of equipment. He's becoming scientific, he's got a telephone. And see the respect now the doctor's getting. Things are changing. We have penicillin, we have streptomycin, sulfonamides, everything, vaccinations. Things are changing now. Now <clears throat> we're beginning to tattle, and of course we've got isoniazin and streptomycin for tuberculosis. Things are now changing very rapidly over a period of 10, 20 years. And then we start to hit a problem again. I know I'm sorry to go up and down this, but this is what I said at the beginning. And this is by a Scottish artist, Joan Eardley. Have you heard of her? Yeah. Famous, wonderful. I got a copy of her book and um, years ago, given to me by one of her relatives when I was a member of the Scottish Arts Club. And uh, you would have seen this, Morris, won't you? Yeah. And this is Glasgow in a tenement. Now, why am I showing you this? Well, because now <clears throat> we begin to realise that the social background is important too now. It's not just medicine. It's something else. And large studies carried out in this college and in the college in London have shown that it's as much as 17 years difference in the age of death of people who were born in a poor environment compared with a rich environment. It's a heck of a difference. That's now. And, and Douglas Black, who was my professor in Manchester, and he came from Shetland, he published a report in 1980 called Inequalities in Health. It was ignored by the government at the time. It wasn't appropriate for them to look at this. But we saw it because it was um, because my professor gave me a copy. Uh, Douglas Black sent me a copy. And he was showing how these inequalities in our life, not, you know, to do with the way you live, how you live, your nutrition, your background and everything. And we're just beginning now to realise that now. And the college here, as well as the one in London, are now uh, looking at this particular problem. The quotation is, social determinants of health. So we've got all this vaccination, all the antibiotics, but still this heck of a difference in life expectancy. And we don't know why. It's easy to dismiss things, but it's not simple. 
But let me lighten it a little bit now. <clears throat> then we hit another problem, though. Let's dismiss the social side. You're born in Morningside or Hampstead, you know, and you're fractured, you know. And, um, but you're still going to die of some terrible disease in later life. And nobody knows what it is. Alzheimer's is on the... But this was by an artist called Mervyn Peake. I don't know if you've heard of it. He was a poet, a writer, totally eccentric. He's the only person I've known who was allowed to leave the army because he was eccentric. <laughs> I would have thought you were eccentric to join the army. Anyway, <coughs> he left the army and he did this painting in 1944 when he'd been demobbed. He was a bit of a weirdo. Um, he, he was odd, certainly. He had illusions, hallucinations and so on. And he went to Queen Square and he examined him. He did all sorts of tests and so on. He couldn't find out what was wrong with him. See, we're hitting this problem now. These complicated diseases. We heard them today at the meeting. Motor disease, multiple sclerosis. These are complicated. And dementias. We now think, in retrospect, that Mervyn Peake had Lewy body dementia. But whatever. He painted this when he must have felt like this. And there's a poem he wrote, and it says this, and it typifies us all as we get older, and you go to the doctor and you say, but what's wrong with you, doctor? Well, um, we're doing a lot of work on this. Oh, yeah, I know you are, but what's the answer? Oh, I waxes and I wanes, sir. I ebbs and I flows. Some say it may be in brain, sir. Some say it be my nose. It isn't and I'm slow, sir, though to cut a story long, it's just, I'd love to know, sir, what the hell is wrong? <laughs> well, that typifies people now. There's big chunks of things in our medicine today that we still don't have a clue about. And people are really getting very concerned about this. One answer is to look at your DNA. And this is taken uh, from the Department of Medical Genetics uh, in Glasgow, done by a group of artists there. The DNA was, of course, um, put on the market by Watson and Crick in 1953 when they figured out how it all worked. And then, uh, just 50 years later, it's been totally sequenced. Three times 10 to the ninth best pairs, something like 14,000 diseases. And um, it's, um, it's, it's been a great success because then you can make a very specific diagnosis if it's one of these sort of diseases. Treatment? I don't know about that but you can make a specific diagnosis. But this is one of my patients in Edinburgh, who was an RSA, uh, Murray Todd, and uh, I admitted him to hospital to find out what was wrong with him to one of my beds, and then saw him quite often on the, uh, in the outpatient department. He's dead now, unfortunately, but he did me this painting or drawing to show what it feels like being a patient. In a, with uh, a doctor and it's all high technology this is him and look at it all uh, ring the bell only if you're burning this is somebody having uh, EMGs I suppose um, and it, it, you have to read it all it's absolutely wonderful he's done it in a very delightful way but the message is clear he's totally confused and he was always so nice with me <clears throat> and he used to say Professor I don't know what the hell you're doing but just go on I'm sure it amuses you and he was always <laughs> and he always talked to me like this and I loved him dearly um, and he did me some proper paintings as well this is him here but you can't read it very clearly it says here um, 
discharged, um, but it may be dangerous. Yes, that was it. But um, anyway, Murray Todd, and I'm sure if you look him up, you'll see lots of work by him. Uh, but he's telling us now in a nice, funny way, uh, we don't have the answer. Ah, but this is a famous painting. Some of you will have seen it. In the history of medicine exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery a couple of years ago, this was one of the main paintings. It's called The Three Oncologists by a contemporary Scottish artist, Ken Curry. And I sat looking, it's a big painting, almost as big as that, and I sat looking at it for ages. The three people you can identify. Uh, the one on the left is the surgeon, Professor Cushira. The pathologist is Professor Lane, and the oncologist on the right is Professor Steele. Think about it, because these now, we're going into modern painting when it's not realistic. They're trying to give you a message. I'll tell you what I think, and then you can put your hands up if you think it's how it affects you. They're actors on a stage. The surgeon says, well, I've done my bit. And he says, well, I'm going to look at the thing in the microscope. And he says, I'll take it to the laboratory. But don't bother us now. We're just about to go off and do it. Does the doctor leave you like that sometimes? They're doing all the tests. They've taken a biopsy. They've taken blood samples. But, well, we don't know, but we're working on it. Well, I spoke to the artist at the time, just by chance. And that's what he wanted to portray. Very clever. Um, indeed, and um, very subtle. I don't know any other artist like this. Um, bit deflammatory, but it's a, the philosophy behind it. Of course, what do you do now? I was at a BMA meeting. I used to be a member of the BMA. I'm not now, but uh, until two years ago, and we had a meeting in London. And the problem was, what do you do when a patient comes to see you? And um, the patient said, look, I looked it up last night on Google, and um, it says so and so and so and so. What, how does the doctor react? It's a very complicated question, but our conclusion at the end of a long discussion was the doctor should say, the GP I'm talking about, uh, the doctor should say, really, well, what was the site you looked at? Let me go home and look it up, and then I'll see you next week. Because he may not know what the latest thing is that people have got on the web. And if you go on the web for any disease now, it's astronomical. The two big ones that stick out in my mind are the carcinoma prostate and carcinoma of the breast. And they have very different treatments in different countries. Yes, I'm getting you depressed again, aren't I? <laughs> uh, and this is not a painting, this is embroidery. And it was done uh, by a young lady for the Lancet when a couple of years ago they had an entire section uh, to do with research and with um, patients' reaction to it. Louise Riley. And um, she called it the patient and researcher. An embroidery. If you look at it, she's making you realise the patient is also the subject of the research. And she's helping them put the jigsaw together herself. And it's true, the patient's part of it now. Doctors are not seeing that. Some doctors still tend to be very superior in their relationship to patients. Well, I have a feeling that's got to go sometime. And you've got to be able to interact with the doctor because you're part of it. Whether you agree or not, she certainly caught the essence of it and the editor must have thought too because he included uh, in, this, um, in this journal. And I did a bit of Googling myself 
and drew this graph. And it's major scientific discoveries over the centuries. Now, major, I mean, I include antibiotics as just one discovery. So these are all major. And for a long time, all we had was Raziz, the Arabic physician who showed that measles wasn't the same as smallpox. Then we had microscopy and things. Now we'll see how it's taking off now as I've tried to explain and discuss. No wonder we're all getting confused. Where do we go from here? Well, this is my last slide you'll be pleased to hear. Um, I want to end with this because I don't want to end negative. Um, because I'm not, otherwise I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be doing medicine and encouraging young people to do it. It's called The Children's Doctor by Andrew Wyeth, an American doctor. And his little boy was very ill and dying in the winter. And this is the one of the very first lady doctors in America. She uh, qualified uh, at uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, and uh, in uh, the early 1900s. And um, she was one of the very first pediatricians. And she's been to see his little boy. And she kept coming. And they lived out in the middle of nowhere. And um, if you look carefully, there's lots of things here telling you. He's a clever artist again. I love these clever artists. She's thoughtful. She looks committed. She's not silly. She's got her back. She's going off. And it's night time. There's the moon. So she's totally dedicated. And um, recently I saw a, um, a medical student had written an article in the BMJ with four C's for what a doctor should be nowadays. First one's competence, well, take that for granted. Should be caring. Should want to care for you as an individual. Compassion, to feel how you will feel. And a commitment to you. And somebody else wrote in and said, and add cheerfulness. So there's five C's. So I want to end now. I've tried to illustrate this variation in a doctor-patient relationship right up until the present time. And recently, the BMJ in the Toot report said, the role of the doctor is changing and will continue to change alongside the needs and expectations of patients, us. Now, I'm one of them now. I'm not a doctor now. I'm a patient. The relationship has been continually changing, affected mostly by the patient's perception of what, they are, what the doctor can do. If you feel he can't do anything, you don't have respect. You feel like turning around and walking out. Some of you will have done that, I'm sure, because I've seen it. But returning to Hippocrates, and I've got a quotation here from Geoffrey Lloyd, who's Professor of Ancient Philosophy at Cambridge, and he said this in his book, while most of the anatomical, physiological and pathological doctrines in the Hippocratic writings have long since been superseded, the ideal of the selfless, dedicated and compassionate doctor they present has lost none of its relevance in the 21st century. And I hope that's true. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.